I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have Karim Mamdani. He is the president and CEO of Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences, uh, or otherwise known simply as Ontario Shores, a mental health facility in Whitby, Ontario. I'm so grateful that he came on the show. I I love having uh, hospital executives in particular on the show because I'm really able to unpack with them uh, what that part of the treatment system is like. And and we get deep into it, I think, uh, uh, in our discussion about how, how hospital and inpatient care interfaces with community care and how it's evolved over the hundred years that Ontario Shores uh, has been around. So uh, I'm grateful to Karim for coming on the show, and I, I think you'll really enjoy the conversation too. So here's my conversation with Karim Mamdani, the CEO of Ontario Shores. So I want to hear about the stories that you've encountered running a hospital. Uh, one of, uh, is it, there are four major psychiatric centers in Ontario, are there? Yeah, that's correct. So there's four specialty mental health hospitals in, in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, the Center for Addiction Mental Health, uh, Ontario Shores, um, Royal Ottawa in Ottawa, mm-hmm. and then Waypoint in, uh, in Penetang. So we've got four organizations that exclusively serve mental health and addictions clientele from a hospital perspective. Right. So it's a, uh, it gives us focus yeah, uh, and it allows us to, fo- uh, to very much concentrate on that client, uh, which typically most organizations have difficulty managing. Yeah. Now, what I'm struck by in, in that list of four, and I think I've either worked with or at, uh, in some capacity, three out of those four, Actually, no, I went to a fundraiser at the Royal once. <laughs> but uh, what I'm struck by are the names, of course. The yeah. names of all of them sound very warm <laughs> when that never used to be the case, right? Uh, uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health used to colloquially be referred to as 999, almost as a threat. Um, Ontario Shores, what was the, the olden days name of that? Yeah, so it's a really good question. So, um, probably the closest would have been uh, you know, um, the Ontario... Uh, asylum or Ontario criminal asylum or something yeah, of often that lunatic asylum yeah. so there's a lot of that um, sort of name and background yeah. that comes with that so how is what has led that change obviously a lot changes before you change the name of a hospital um, and it's been a while now of course that you've been called Ontario Shores but um, how does that name Ontario Shores Center for uh, Mental Health Sciences reflect uh, the practice that's happening on your campus now so you're quite right. I mean, I think lots change. Uh, so interestingly enough, we actually celebrated our 100th anniversary, October 23rd. Wow. Um, so we have been in our community and have been delivering care for 100 years. Mm. And probably what hasn't changed in all of that has been the care and the, the love and affection, if you will, of our staff or our clients. That mm-hmm. hasn't changed. That That passion for doing the right thing and looking after our clients has always been there. And how many staff do you have? So uh, we're up to around 1,300 staff wow. now. Yeah, so it's bigger, a larger, Way bigger than I thought it was. Yeah, actually. it's a much larger organization. We 350 beds, yeah. um, and we can certainly talk a lot more about that if, if you wish to explore that. But what has changed, I think, uh, is I think in two big buckets. The first is societally. Right. Where we were, and uh, we were built initially because Queen Street, Center for Addiction and Mental Health now, mm-hmm. 
was reaching its capacity in terms of looking after clients. And mm -hmm. so there was a movement that we should open up another uh, facility to really deal with the overflow mm -hmm. from Queenstown. And this was 100 years ago. 100 years yeah. ago. And so uh, the notion that you simply accepted individuals who were ill, mentally ill, and you basically house them for the duration of their lives mm. was the prevailing approach at the time. Mm -hmm. And societally, uh, people wanted those um, institutions to be closed off. Right. They Prisons, wanted, essentially. Yeah, they wanted them walled up. And if you've been to the Center of, uh, for Addiction and Mental Health, you'll know that they actually had a wall around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they've maintained some. Did Ontario Shores did. have a wall at that time? No. So, so at the time, because we were in Whitby, um, which is sort of our home base, uh, fairly far away from the city, mm -hmm. it, it already felt like you were away, like right. quite far away. And we had a very large plot of land at the time the government bought um, – large plot of land and it included a working farm it mm. included a number of things so the notion was that people would go there they'd live out their lives in a place where they could be safe and society could be safe from them right so what kinds of people i mean when we say society could be safe from them now we know of course that violence and mental illness aren't there's no risk of of harm to people generally speaking so what kinds of people or what types of struggles were people dealing with who would be sent off to, to Whitby? Or so I would that think that you would, you would have the same diagnosis as you might currently have. So people sure. who are suffering from psychosis, from schizophrenia, or uh, you know, individuals who might have very, very acute um, uh, you know, sort of obsessive compulsive behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, so any of that sort of debilitating mm -hmm. uh, extent of illness, you would you would have somebody move, come to uh, Ontario Shores or previously, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the asylum. So as society, we had those sorts of issues. And I think what's changed since then has been generally an acceptance. Sure. That, you know, one in five, one in four, whatever stats I think that are uh, most comfortable based on the literature that people are comfortable with. Um, are individuals who will suffer from a mental illness at some point in their lives. Mm -hmm. So this isn't something that you can sort of wall off and put you know, far away right. and not worry that it'll uh, sort of um, disturb the well-being of, of society. It is something that society actually has to work with. It, it is a part of society. And, uh, and, and, and our work should be about treating the illness in a way that allows people to become productive again mm. as members of society. And that maintains their humanity. Absolutely. And so if you then uh, think about the second uh, change that's occurred, it's been about care. Mm. We no longer think about uh, keeping people for the duration of their lives. Mm -hmm. We don't uh, think about the fact that once they come to us, you know, that's kind of the end of the road for them and mm. they don't really have an opportunity to reintegrate into society. Uh, in fact, care has changed so dramatically, um, what we have available to us in terms of tools to assist mm -hmm. has changed so dramatically that people are, are able to leave uh, organizations like ourselves in relatively quick turnaround times, mm -hmm. get back out into the community, be a part of 
returning back to life mm-hmm. and wanting to be a part of that life that they had previously. What does re- relatively quick mean? I mean, there's always outliers mm. on either side, you know, the 24 hours or the or the year or more. But what does the general uh, admission length look like? So again, it depends on diagnosis, but mm-hmm. I would say that generally speaking, that you're anywhere between sort of 60 to 100 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a far cry even from a decade ago. Sure. You know, a decade ago, 15 years mm-hmm. ago, you might have had people who were... Um, Average length of stay would have probably been six months to a year. Um, And in probably, like I said, less than 15 years, we have have shortened that down to about an average of 100 days. Now, is that a a change in treatment paradigm or is that a change in funding and requirements to, to cycle more people through? No, I, I, do, I really do think it, it has to do more with, um, you know, the treatment options that are available and some of the supports that are available in the community. Mm-hmm. So that, that between those, um, we have been able to move uh, people in and out of the facilities much quicker. Right. And what I mean by um, treatment is that I think we've become better at understanding what the expectation of individuals coming into treatment might be. Okay. So we can map that out much more tightly than we have in the past. So what, uh, you know, again, as you mentioned, there are sort of uh, two ends of that um, curve uh, that we can control. So people who are, who are extremely resistant and mm-hmm. take a long, long time and other people who recover very quickly and can move on. But for, in general, we can map out uh, a pathway that looks at the amount of time that it's going to take for people to work through any given diagnosis mm. with us. Mm-hmm. And we have clinical pathways and we have clinical standards that we can apply. And so by applying that treatment as early as possible in the person's uh, arrival with us, we can make sure that in fact every opportunity is provided for their betterment and then back out Mm. into the community. I'd like to, if you're, and I should say too, that your background isn't as a a physician. No. Uh, uh, You've been working in the hospital leadership space. Um, so I appreciate if uh, – I'll try not to ask too many <laughs> clinically heavy questions, but you do run a major hospital. No, right? absolutely. So, um, but in terms of the treatment course or the treatment pathway that that patients uh, and clients are facing then versus now, you know, you're staying for six months or a year. Um, what does that uh, type of treatment look like then? So I think in the past the notion was because people were coming for these very long periods of time, Treatment wasn't necessarily something that you delivered right away mm. and consistently every single day. Much of what was being provided was safety. So right. um, a place where they could live safely, a place where they could receive nutrition and uh, medication safely. Because the assumption was they're probably not going to get better anyway. Right? Yes. And, and or it will take forever. Right. So why, are, why would we be aggressive in the manner in which we're going to try and uh, treat the illness. Um, now, we are very much looking at everyday counts. Mm. And so we're going to be aggressive in trying to deliver therapy. We're going to be aggressive in trying to deliver um, uh, medication and then to try and get that individual back out into the community as quickly as possible. But that wasn't necessarily the same degree of aggressiveness or same degree of um, desire previously as right. well. And, and quite frankly, the demand has 
gone up dramatically for sure. the need for service. And I think that is because society has been more willing to talk about uh, seeking help. Yeah. And so we have people who are waiting for treatment. And so if we don't become better mm-hmm. at being able to deliver care and get people out of hospital, mm-hmm. then we're not able to deal with the individuals who desperately need to get into the hospital uh, for treatment. So it we're, we're under constant pressure sure. and it perhaps didn't feel that way sure. in the past. The more you talk about um, help and, and the more you raise awareness, naturally it's a supply and demand economy. The more you're going to increase demand on the services that we have. Now, one of the things that I've often said to people is that, you know, we need a properly tiered or, or stepped system that not everybody needs intensive inpatient 24-7 care, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that it might really feel that way when you're in a really bad place. Um, so therefore, how has uh, Ontario Shores broadened out to include more types of care than strictly speaking doctor comes to your hospital bed? Yeah. Um, in fact, most of our growth has not taken place in the inpatient side of the house at all. Mm. So um, when we uh, divested from government, so the government ran the facility up until 2006. Okay. Um, since its inception. Um, and then in 2006, we divested from government that be- became a separate hospital under uh, the Public Hospitals Act. Uh, so if I use that as a bit of a demarcation point to try and compare growth, we were probably at around 23,000 outpatient visits, if you will, in 2006. Mm-hmm. This past year, we hit 90,000 outpatients. So we've almost quadrupled our volume. And uh, that's where the growth is taking place. Um, Now, many of those clinics that we run are specialty clinics. There's a women's clinic. There's a trauma clinic. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a clinic uh, for obsessive compulsive disorders. So there's a number of different um, specialties that we're providing. Mm -hmm. But uh, each of those, uh, you know, we have... 3,000 people on our outpatient waiting list mm. who are on average waiting 100 days. So the demand has been tremendous. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that has been part of the need to be able to move much more quickly. On the inpatient side, we are probably running about the same number of beds as mm-hmm. we did in 2006, but we have become faster in the turnaround in the inpatient side of the house. Mm-hmm. And so we've moved from about 100,000 patient days at capacity in 2006, and we're probably closer to about 115 or 116,000 patient days. So that has grown as well um, because we've been able to reduce length of stay. Mm. Now, what that means is that inpatient care is available mm-hmm. and is something that we ought to consider for individuals who cannot be managed any other way. Mm-hmm. And so that's not our first line of treatment, but the final line of treatment when right. no other option is available for an individual. But we we do have, for example, um, outpatient care, which means you come to the clinic. We have um, partial hospitalization programs where individuals might come for, uh, you know, a, a six-hour period or you know, but they don't stay with us. They right. don't have an overnight stay, but they're literally with us for the day. Um, often it's used as an opportunity to treat somebody so that they don't get admitted. Mm-hmm. They've sort of um, worsened, if you will, in their symptoms, but not bad enough to get admitted. Or uh, they are 
been just discharged, but they need a bit of a bridge while they're living in the community, and the partial hospitalization program provides that mm. to them. So we have that as uh, something that's available as well. And then we are doing a number of things virtually now. Mm-hmm. So we have um, the Ontario Tidal Medicine Network, which we can use uh, screens, um, whether it's on your computer, and then our clinician is in-house on their device uh, that you know can connect. We are using um, virtual counseling sessions where we're um, sort of counseling people, but in shorter bursts. Um, mm-hmm. And we're having to be quite innovative in those ways because of the demand. So we, mm-hmm. we you know, there's no way that you can see 100,000 visits plus all of the people who are waiting on the list without thinking about ways to support those individuals um, uh, quicker and quicker and quicker. And so how mm-hmm. can we do that? We can do that with face-to-face visits. We can do that with virtual visits. We can do that with shorter counseling sessions that are coached through using mm-hmm. an e-therapy type of model. We can do that by uh, you know, using OTN. We, so there's a whole range of different mm-hmm. tools that we have ab- available. And each of those, then once person starts to get better, we start to look at how we bridge them back to, to community-based agencies which mm-hmm. can either support them or if they're in a specialty clinic with us, uh, how we might be able to support them over a prolonged period of time before we discharge yeah. them. Now, this is, a, of course, or, or maybe it's not an of course, maybe it's not obvious, but to me, uh, an ideal kind of situation or, or, a, or a, a nice Nice on paper uh, for how the system would work, but I'm struck by how you said inpatient treatment is is when there's no other option available. Um, how much of it is of your inpatient treatment are you seeing it's because there's no other option accessible, that there might be other options? We know that more than 80% of people who get treatment for depression recover, that most people recover from depression, uh, but most people don't have, act, uh, don't have um, uh, readily accessible treatments that do work. Uh, so they're winding up in hospital. Do you see this happening a lot? Uh, so I, I would pri- probably break that up into two components. Um, so the first thing is, of course, you, we want to continue the education of the general population about um, mental illnesses generally mm. so that what you do is you uh, learn and observe and assess those early in someone's illness and not wait for that to get um, so bad that it requires hospitalization. Mm -hmm. So of course we want to do that as as early as possible and then it can probably be uh, started in terms of treatment fairly um, less aggressively Mm -hmm. in in doctor's office, in uh, community clinics, etc. But what I would say is that we know that irrespective of how early we get to dealing with an illness. Sometimes there are underlying genetic sure. uh, issues that prevent the person from, for example, uh, you know, they're just resistant to the medication. Mm-hmm. Um, they have much more acute breaks with reality in terms mm-hmm. of their psychosis. Um, their effect. Uh, forces sort of behaviors that are extremely aggressive and dangerous to themselves or to others. There are no known um, therapies to deal with those individuals just on a community basis at the moment. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that the future can't allow us to be able to do that. But right now, that's not the case. 
And so for those individuals then, uh, inpatient hospitalization becomes particularly important. Mm-hmm. Now, in our, at our hospital, you can't get access to those beds simply by walking in off the right. street. Well, and this is partly what I'm wondering, right? If uh, and and I think others have raised this as well. Is the system being clogged up in some respect by people who don't need that level of service necessarily, but who don't have any other option? Yeah. So I would say that on the admission side, that wouldn't be our wouldn't be Ontario Shores's experience. Mm. So because anyone who is being admitted to an inpatient bed at Ontario Shores right. has to be referred. Sure. And it takes a bit of just geographically actually getting out to your facility. Yeah. And, too, and right? you know, you think about you know, whether it's a psychiatrist in the community, whether it's a hospital uh, that has already been treating somebody, they've been working with that person perhaps for a week, for 14 days, can't manage to make that person well. Um, they need access to our specialization and mm-hmm. our uh, uh, sort of ability uh, so anyone coming into our inpatient side of the house, we don't take them in from an emerge. We don't have an emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can't walk in off the street and say that uh, they need service. So our inpatient side of the house is as tight to get into mm. um, as you can possibly make it. Right. By design. Not By design. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. And, and so the whole idea is to maintain people as much as possible in the community. When they need access to us, it's because everything else has failed. Mm. So they're now getting admitted to our facility. Now, the, the, to your comment, I think that once we have uh, gotten them to the point where we feel that it, they can now leave, we have difficulty discharging them. Okay. And so? I believe that that's because of a couple of issues. One is that resources in the community may still not be capable, even though we feel that they are now ready for discharge. Mm-hmm. Uh, resources in the community may not f- feel that they're not capable of managing that individual, even then. Right. And so we will hold a case conference. We will talk about, you know, here's Kareem. Here's the sort of diagnosis that he has. Here are the care plan that we've put them on. Here's what we will do to support them, even uh, in the community. Uh, can we, in fact, discharge them to you or mm-hmm. you or, you know, agency A, agency B, agency C? And oftentimes what we hear is, no, we can't, mm. we can't accept that type of patient mm-hmm. for any number of reasons. And so they end up staying a little bit longer with us than they, the patient, or we, right. uh, the provider, would like because we don't believe that that's healthy for either sure. Uh, either party. And then do you tend to, to see kind of a peaking of the curve if they're in too long? It's counterproductive? Oh, uh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you never want anyone to be in a hospital in an inpatient setting for longer than they absolutely have to be. Because right. think about it as just, you know, you know, we talk a lot about the boomerang generation and in young people going back home. Mm. Um, so the longer a young person stays at home, the more they become comfortable mm-hmm. with certain things being done for them. Sure. And, and I don't Certain think that, institutionalization. That's basically. right. And yeah. th- that doesn't become any different for someone who is suffering from an illness and yeah. is now uh, at hospital for longer than they need to be. And we don't want that. So what we try and do is aggressively move them. I think the other part that keeps them in is sometimes behaviors are very difficult to manage. And so say mm-hmm. we're trying to discharge, not necessarily to a community agency in, uh, you know, in our local a geography, but let's say we're trying to discharge them to a long-term care home or a nursing home and they're elderly. 
and they've had in the past perhaps a sexual dis, uh, disinhibition or they've had uh, behavioral outbursts. And, you know, those uh, organizations uh, would worry about the safety mm. of their client, uh, of their other clients and their staff. And so if they see any of that on, if you will, the record of this individual that we're sharing and mm -hmm. we're saying, okay, here's the discharge planning, here's how you're going to manage them. If they see that, often their times they'll say, nope, we don't want them. Mm -hmm. So we have to work extra hard to try and figure out a plan, a behavioral plan uh, uh, that could that they could manage. Mm -hmm. But almost always is the second that starts to show up in the in in the behavior in right. the home, they're immediately they get able, scared. Yeah, they yeah. get scared and they send the individual back. Right. So so we have to work these things through, not right. only in the community but with these other institutional providers, um, so that we don't tie up these precious inpatient resources for for uh, people who who desperately need them that are need you know that 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 have to come yeah. from other organizations. Yeah, I've I've always this is a, an area of of I think the treatment system that I've always been passionately um, opinionated about, but interested in as well. Uh, I was in and out of inpatient psychiatric care myself seven times, and it's the old idea that nothing changes if nothing changes. If you're uh, um, discharged into the exact same situation that put you in there in the first place, mm. without any real follow up care, without community services who know how to support you, then it's a it's a cycle. And then the danger of that cycle, at least I experienced and, and certainly clients that I've worked with too, is that you then become the, the frequent flyer, right. the person who the more help they need, the less help they get. Um, and I think that that plays into that institutionalization, even if they are in and out a lot, then they get labeled uh, as somebody who's unhelpable. And I don't think that seems to be very productive. I 100% agree. Um, well, we've generally find is readmissions uh, to Ontario Shores are probably lower than where we, where we might see across the system. And I think that's partly because of the way in which, again, admission has to be prioritized for, uh, for admission at, at our facility. Mm -hmm. um, so if you were treated at a, um, I'm going to say a general hospital that has an emergency mm -hmm. and you're discharged from that hospital and you go back out into the community, if you needed readmission again or you felt you needed readmission again, you might go back to the emergency of that general hospital, the emergency room of that general hospital, mm -hmm. uh, and hence the cycle would start again. Mm -hmm. Often with us, when we are discharging somebody back out into the community, we will try as much as we can to work with a community-based agency or another institution mm -hmm. to make sure that the care plan that we have developed for the individual has followed through. If they deteriorate again in the community, the likelihood is they're not re being readmitted to us, but probably being readmitted to one of those agencies right. or hospitals first. Mm -hmm. And then if again, treatment is needed beyond the capacities of those providers, they'll get readmitted to us. Mm -hmm. So we monitor both our institutional specific readmission rate, if you will, and our readmission rate for our clients, regardless of where they get readmitted. And, um, you know, that way we try to understand whether or not um, the supports that we try to put in place for that individual mm. uh, failed and how we should be doing something different. What an interesting way to, to frame that consideration of the problem. You know, is, 
so maybe I'll ask you if, if somebody is uh, readmitted a lot, if they're in and out of hospital a lot, is it is it because of, of any lack of something they're doing uh, or is it that the system is failing them? It's not a satisfying answer, but I, I'm going to start by saying it depends. Mm. Uh, maybe start then first with the individual. Um, you know, there are certain there are certain um, expectations or uh, accountabilities for the individual mm-hmm. in, oh, sure. in the management of their own health, and um, whether that you know, so we may have a we may have a plan that we have set out for them that looks at their nutrition, that looks at their um, exercise requirements, that might look at their medication management, the fact that they have to be on medication. So there are a number, a range of different things that we would say, you know, if you're able to do these things, the likelihood of your successful um, reintegration into community is much higher. And if, on the other hand, you fail to do some of these things, and the failure is not necessarily because they don't want to do it. They might be because of a reoccurrence of their disease that deludes them into believing that they don't need to follow Mm. the protocol that's been established. But if they don't do those things, then the likelihood is they'll be less successful integrated into the community. Or sometimes the treatment is working and the, and the symptoms subside so they don't think they need it anymore. Exactly. So, so some of that is, if you will, person centric or client centric in terms of uh, reasons they may get readmitted. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it is about uh, the lack of a system. Mm-hmm. And so, although we have tried to do a, a warm handoff mm-hmm. to a provider in the community, uh, we may not have done a good enough job of being able to convey exactly the way that we have been looking after them. Uh, you know, we, I think, are getting better at being able to provide the communication in terms of our notes and things like that. Mm-hmm. But they may not have. Uh, on their end, they may not have the same set of resources. Sure. Uh, so if we're discharging from a from an organization like Ontario Shores, which has a multidisciplinary team of uh, providers that you know has psychologists and social workers and 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 nursing and and other allied health resources, and you're discharging to a community-based agency which largely relies, say, on registered practical nurses, you know, patient care attendants, or something like mm-hmm. that. They may not have the ability um, and capacity to manage uh, very difficult sort of, Im- you know, sort of emerging issues mm-hmm. for that individual. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's individual, and and sometimes it's it's uh, the system. The sure. system's not been able to tie all of that together uh, tightly in a way that allows the resources to flow where it's right. needed. I often found, uh, both as a patient and then later as a clinician. Um, Often shocked, especially fresh out of grad school, how unscientific sometimes the treatment pathway seems. That, you know, I experienced this myself. You go in, you know, you maybe get visited by a psychiatrist for once for 15 minutes, and then you're just left to your own devices on the ward for the rest of the day. And that to me, there was never really a whole lot of, okay, what's going on here? What are the medications? What are the symptoms? What's the strategy? Uh, and then, especially, what are the goalposts? What are we trying to get to, and, and how do we measure and monitor? It never seemed like all that intentional of a process. So, you know, being a center for mental health sciences, part of the name, how is that different at Ontario Yeah, Shores? so it is. It's um, so I'm not sure that I could I could say to you today that we are there. Hmm. But what I'm going to say to you is 
we're probably further along than any other institution in the province mm-hmm. on this issue. How so? Well, um, so about seven years ago, we began work, you know, at, at, at Ontario Shores that started to look at standardizing care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and standardizing care, uh, be, the, the, the sort of objective is to take away the variability. Mm-hmm. Be, exactly what you were describing. So when any clinician approaches you, what is the objective of that interaction? Right. It shouldn't be just about, oh, I'll just go and see Mark today. Mm-hmm. But what's the intent and purpose of that interaction? So we began that work about seven years ago, very specifically to try and address the issue of reducing variability. And we chose three areas that are predominant uh, in terms of our volume of service. Mm-hmm. Schizophrenia, mm-hmm. Uh, depression, and dementia. Mm-hmm. And uh, we established teams internally that um, took a view of the literature, sort of jurisdictionally across the planet. Said which one, you know, where can we find best guidelines for mm-hmm. the treatment of these areas for inpatient care? Uh, and we started to establish clinical pathways for each one of those conditions. Then, about uh, two years in into that journey, uh, Health Quality Ontario, which was the government's um, agency that was mandated to develop standards, uh, started to think about standards for mental health. Mm -hmm. And they talked to the system and they talked to many providers in the system and asked for what would be the areas that they should begin the development of these standards. And they talked to us and we said those three areas that I described a minute ago were probably the right ones for inpatient care. And that we could assist them in actually developing these standards. So of the three, they um, they set up uh, sort of committees and of experts to review all three of them. And they uh, wanted to develop standards for all three of them. And two of those committees, if you will, were co-chaired by clinicians from our organization. Mm-hmm. We then had the opportunity, once Health Quality Ontario completed their work, to start to talk about how do you implement that. Now, the implementation science across healthcare is weak at best. Mm, Um, And so what we did is we took all of those standards, and and there's no other organization that's done this. We took every one of those standards and the statements that are associated with those standards, and there's typically about 15 statements associated with those standards that have been then proven by all of those experts as these are the things you have to do Mm -hmm. in order to be able to be successful in the treatment of that particular condition. So we took each one of those statements And we embedded those into our electronic health record. Now, Ontario Shores, one of the things about Ontario Shores is that we are great innovators. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we began life, uh, you know, like literally we're in our our adolescence, only a 13-year-old organization. (laughs) But in order to be able to really catch up, if you will, to the mature organizations, we have really relied on innovation as a driver. And so one of the things that we did was introduce an electronic health record about, uh, about 10 years ago into the system and have continued to develop that. So we are the first organization in Canada to have been declared a HIMSS 7 organization. Which what does is, that mean? So the HIMSS 7, uh, so HIMSS is a, organize, um, a standard setting body, in the, uh, that, that it's an international standard setting body that basically evaluates uh, all the electronic health records that individual organizations 
build mm-hmm. and then you know indicates whether or not you're a paperless organization that in fact is relying on business intelligence to drive clinical change and okay. clinical uh, value yeah. so uh, we were the first organization in Canada to to be declared a him seven organization which is the highest level of um, uh, of capability and we were the first behavioral health organization or mental health hospital in the world to be wow. declared a him seven organization shortly after that we also won Uh, the Davies Award, which has only been um, given to 77 organizations across the world, uh, and we were uh, one of those. The, the reason I mention that is that because of that capability, because of that fundamental infrastructure that we had, mm. we were able to take every one of those statements and we were able to embed them in our electronic health record. Right. And then so, how did that translate to actual clinical practice? Right. So what happens is as somebody comes in, say, with schizophrenia, their entire clinical pathway pops right up. Okay. And it says, here's what you're going to need to be able to do. Here's the prescription that you're going to need for um, you know, family intervention therapy. Here's the prescription that you're going to need to be able to do for clinical behavioral therapy. And we start to actually implement based on evidence. Yes. And you take away the variability. Yeah. So it's the evidence which starts to drive the manner in which, and then the evidence tells us this is what we need to do day one. Mm-hmm. This is what we need to do day 15. This is what we need to do day 22. And we and we are able to actually follow a pathway to be able to then accelerate um, the, the, the recovery of the individual and back out into the community. So reduction of variability has been core mm-hmm. and evidence base has been core to the way in which we are driving care mm-hmm. at Ontario Shores. Um, and to me, that's how we're really combating this mm-hmm. notion that What exactly am I expecting yeah. when I when I come in for care? Well, and you I you know read studies all the time about these great treatments happening in laboratory settings and I read them and think that's amazing that this particular treatment or medication achieved that kind of results, but that is completely uh, un, uh, unfeasible in the real world in a naturalistic setting because none of these variables are monitored, it's not the, you can't change what you don't measure uh, as they say. So it sounds like you're turning that on its on its head that entire approach. Yeah, absolutely. And then what we are doing is actually monitoring by clinician, mm. by program, uh, by organization our adherence to those standards. And so we are able to, for example, tell you today, I can say to you, we have 80% adherence across every single mm. uh, statement and standard for those three. In terms of your clinicians administering That's according correct. to the flow. So then w- what kind of impact has that had on outcomes? Are you there yet? So we are dropping, um, we are dropping our lens of state dramatically. I mentioned to you that, you know, over time it's come down quite considerably, but even in the last two or three years, mm. uh, it's come down quite, quite considerably. Uh, we can also show, um, uh, you know, based on various scales for, de- uh, for depression example with the GAD-7 or uh, PH9 scores, what people are doing in terms of their improvement, mm-hmm. uh, what their base was when they came in and what their improvement looks like on, on, on discharge. So we are able to demonstrate all of that as well. Mm-hmm. So that information we share, what's, you know, what's the recovery on the RAS score and mm-hmm. what's the recovery on, on, on these scales and we, are, and we actually publish that on our balance scorecard as well. You've been characterized as uh, having a leadership style that encourages open and honest conversations, ongoing training, and being as human as possible. Uh, you would think that it would be the, the um, 
most necessary piece to have humans <laughs> who are caring for people who are most vulnerable. But then how do you how do you keep the humanity and the latitude for individual difference, both for for your clinicians and yeah. your professionals, but yeah. also for the patients who are coming to see you? They often don't want to be standardized. Nobody wants to be standardized in that kind of way, right? In terms of fit, all fit into a box. Yeah, so... So there's a lot in that question. I'll try to sort of unpack it a little bit. You know, one of the great um, challenges for clinicians is trying to marry, if you will, the art, which is the humanity piece that you were referring to, the Mm -hmm. art of caring for somebody, the humanness, with the evidence that exists. And it does have to be, it, it does have to be brought together. You can't flow too far one way. Right. Or the other. Well, people actually aren't as different as they think they are. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> you know, you, you, look, you look at, you know, you look at the popular literature uh, or the scientific literature, not the popular literature, but the scientific literature. Mm. And you say, here's evidence of X. And it typically takes 15 to 20 years for that evidence to find itself from the journal in which it's first published mm. to practice and it becomes a natural part of the delivery of care. Mm-hmm. And that's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's wrong because we spent vast amounts of resources to develop that uh, knowledge, mm-hmm. and then we're wasting that capacity for 15 to 17 years, and people are suffering mm-hmm. in a manner that we could have alleviated if we had brought the evidence faster into uh, into practice. Well, and then often, you know, whether especially not scientists, but clinicians and governments, they don't want to often go back to a 20-year-old research paper or a 15-year-old research paper. And so they go on. Exactly. <laughs> so nothing ever gets implemented. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so so you so for us, it's ta- it's shortening that. Mm. Right? Uh, so all of our clinical pathways, all of our um, uh, uh, you know, evidence is reviewed every 2 years. Mm. And the notion is that we go from that 15 to 17 year time lag down to two years so that the wow. evidence is what helps clinicians feel confident mm-hmm. that they're doing the right thing by their patient. And you know, at the end of the day, clinicians are raised in a scientific environment. They, they experiment, learn, they apply, and so they're programmed, if you will, or they're faced with this notion of what's the right evidence to be able to apply for this. So that so we can we can offer that. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is, of course, the humanity and the compassion that they bring. And I and I mentioned to you that when we began our journey as an institution, we began that journey a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I told you that didn't change is the love and compassion that our people bring in the care that they deliver. Mm-hmm. So you have to be sensitive in, uh, to the, in your hiring process that the individuals that are joining your organization cherish the same values mm. organizationally that we are embodying in the care that we deliver. Mm. So it can't be at the expense of one or the right. other. And it's been, shown, it's been shown several times in research that um, people with lived experience report that they receive the most stigma from frontline care providers, right? So how do you counteract that stigma yeah. in your own people? It, it, you know, you, you, you raise an important point. There's nothing more uh, challenging for a provider, like an institutionally provider, 
or for that matter, I guess any, like if you think about the individual that you meet at the cashier, mm. there's there's real differences between individuals who are doing the same function. Right. People who have perhaps have been there, not always, but perhaps have been there a very long period of time, and they are just interested in, you know, having you go through that line and mm. get out the other end and um, so they can get home and have supper with that's their family right. they right? can check out and they don't yeah. have to uh, they don't have to do anything sure. unusual in their day yeah. and then there's the a person who's just got that infectious smile on their face and they're um, and they're and they're talking to you and they're engaging with you and all of a sudden the process of getting your f- items on the conveyor belt and then bagged out the door is a pleasant one, mm. and that's no different. Yeah, um, in any aspect of human interaction, no matter where you are, and that includes healthcare. I experienced this so many times working as a clinician, where I'd go with a client to hospital, and I would leave frustrated, feeling. I should not get better customer service buying socks at the Gap than I get with somebody who has their most is in their most vulnerable place in their life, right? Just being courteous and they're simple things. So how do you actually communicate that then to your frontline people that, you know, this might be your hundredth time doing this intake today, but it's this person's first time and it's really hard for them? You you try desperately to appeal to what brought them mm. to care in the first place. Like sometimes it's about the individual again, like just as we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Kareem as the, you know, uh, uh, the care provider can change mm-hmm. and um, their life experiences are such that they no longer have that same degree of commitment and energy. And um, and so we can talk about how we are helping manage that. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll come back to that. And then there's the environment in which that person is working, in which you know they feel beaten down and trodden upon, and mm. they no longer uh, are uh, excited about the prospect of looking after the uh, uh, someone who's going through that very difficult time in their lives. And so, what we want to be able to do is, first of all, connect them to why they came to the profession in the first place. Because people who come into mental health care, mm-hmm. they're very special people. Yeah, almost everyone has a story of their own. Absolutely, like, yeah. like they they could have chosen. Any variety of subspecialties, certainly more profitable ones. <laughs> Absolutely, again, like they could go, but whether it's whether it's the medical profession or whether it's nursing, yeah. they could go into something things that are much more sexy and mm-hmm. exciting. And they can go and be in an ICU, or they could go, you know, go and look after peds, uh, you know, young 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 children. Mm-hmm. But they chose to come into mental health, mm. and so what is it that brought you here, and how do we keep that alive? And that, that compassion reemerge, and so mm-hmm. I think there's two things that we have done. One is that we really focus on the wellness of our of our staff, mm-hmm. and we offer uh, any number of different things. So we look. If you ever go on our website, we have something called um, the the well being uh, wheel, well being that includes about a half a dozen items around it. So there's financial well being, there's physical well being, there's spiritual well being. Uh, there's physical well-being, like we have a, a whole host of psychological well-being, and we have programs that are targeting every one of those items at mm-hmm. the organization, plus resources that they can uh, avail of themselves in any one of those areas. Mm-hmm. The whole idea is that we want to ensure that the individual, if life has been difficult for them, they're going through difficult times, have access to all of these things which should be able to strengthen and build up their resiliency once again. Mm. 
The other thing that we do is we constantly educate. So we went through uh, something called Shared Journey about 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, where we took the entire organization through the life of what it meant to be someone who suffered from a mental illness. So mm -hmm. it didn't matter who you were, whether you were the CEO, whether you were a senior management team member, whether you were uh, an environmental services worker, we took everybody through the same program to reacquaint them mm -hmm. to that interface between someone who is unwell and you as a provider. Mm -hmm. And we've tried to keep on top of that by uh, introducing other programs like mental health first aid mm -hmm. and other programs which reinvigorate for people the idea that they um, are a part of this healing process. Mm -hmm. And in being part of the healing process, uh, A, you have to take care of yourself. B, you have to be well-educated so that you, you know that what you're doing makes a difference. And it makes a difference in every interaction that you have. So those are some of the ways that we try mm -hmm. to counter um, what can sometimes be just difficult day in, day out interactions with people who are suffering. Why do you think that you got into this? I mean, why do you get up every morning and go work at a psychiatric hospital? You know, I've been, I've been in healthcare my entire career. Uh, I graduated uh, with a master's in business administration back in 1990. Uh, so it's been almost 30 years for me. And uh, I, you know, with sort of a specialty in finance and health systems management. And the reason why um, sort of harkens back to when I first came to Canada. So um, I was born in East Africa. I was born in Uganda. And uh, in 1972, um, there was a coup that occurred in Uganda. And many of the people who, like, we had, you know, we were citizens of Uganda. My, my parents had been born there. Um, my grandparents came from, from, uh, from India and settled in, in Africa. We'd been there two generations already. Uh, but there was a coup that occurred in uh, in Uganda, and the order was that everyone who was non-black, non-Ugandan citizenship had to leave. And so we were literally the second last plane to leave from, from Uganda. And uh, we left everything behind. We came to Canada, and we landed at Mirabella Airport. It was in November. And uh, I remember coming off the plane, and at the time, I was a very young uh, boy, I was in my shorts. We just come from East Africa. It was warm. I was landing in, uh, and it was snowing. Like any child that comes off an airplane and sees snow for the first time, you just run into the snow. <laughs> it's just like this is wonderful. Wow, look at all this. Of course, not realizing a it's cold, and and b I'm I'm wearing shorts, and boy, this is really <laughs> going to sting in a minute. But there were people there. Um, who were waiting for us. And I, I learned after the fact that there were people from the Salvation Army and they were receiving refugees that were coming from Uganda. And somebody ran uh, up to me and enfolded me in a blanket and uh, made me warm. So my first impression of coming to Canada was this incredible experience of someone's warmth and love for me as a human being, um, escaping a terrible uh, place. And so when I reflect on the things that are truly special about Canada, two things come to mind. One is healthcare. It's that warm blanket around us. It's knowing that if I get ill, I'm not going to be bankrupt. 
I'm not going to be thrown to the side, but society loves and cherishes me as a human being and will nourish me to be back to who I was before the illness. So healthcare is in this incredible, incredible um, commodity that as Canadians, we have to preserve. And the other is um, education. So I, as a, um, you know, as a refugee, had access to education. And I had access to affordable post-secondary education. My parents weren't wealthy. Um, they weren't able to provide me uh, the resources to go to post-secondary education, but I was able to borrow enough to be able to do that. Those two things have to be the things that preserve Canada going into the future. They're the things that level everything in, 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 the, you know, in the Canadian context. Anybody who works hard enough knows that they can go through education and have the support that if they're not well, that they can still come back. And to me, preserving healthcare became the driver and so as I chose the pathway that I was, that, that I am following today, it was about finance, the systems, costs, and healthcare. And how do I bring those two things together so that the future is about preservation of our incredible healthcare system into the future? Because as, as taxpayers, if we no longer trust the value that we get for healthcare, then we are more likely to start to abandon the current system and think about bringing in more private, perhaps, systems. Mm -hmm. And to me, that, that would be a total failure of our, of our generation if we allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. So, my, so my, my view is about every single day, do we create value? Can we demonstrate that value? Can we show that the money that the taxpayer is giving to us is actually being turned into something that is valuable to society. And if we can do that, then we preserve the opportunity for our children and our grandchildren and their children to actually receive health care in this incredible, compassionate way that we've become used to. So that's what drives me. Karim Mamdani, CEO of Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. There we go. There's my conversation with Karim Memdani. He's the CEO of the Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences, or Ontario Shores for short. Um, I loved talking to him about his, his own story uh, of coming to Canada as a refugee and having that warm blanket wrapped around him. And, and now the work that he does to, to help so, wrap that blanket around so many other people uh, in a warm and caring way. He, he really is a, an inspirational uh, leader in the sector, and, and I look forward to seeing more of the developments to come out of uh, Ontario Shores, in particular with their scientific approach to treatment and recovery. I think that's uh, refreshing and well-needed in this space. So if you enjoyed my conversation, I'd, I'd also suggest that you check out the one that I had uh, a few months ago with Catherine Zahn, Dr. Catherine Zahn, uh, the CEO of, the, of CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, and we've had a number of other physicians and healthcare providers on the show as well. So go check out all those episodes on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, 
subscribe. Scroll on down to the bottom, leave us a star rating, leave us some comments. I do read them and I love them. Uh, And you can also get us anywhere else uh, you you download your podcast. So if it's not on Apple Podcasts, you can head over to Google Podcasts, to Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Deezer. We're on YouTube. These get posted all over my social media as well. Uh, So you can follow me, at Mark Hennick. That's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. You can follow, you can head over to my website, markhennick.com, and I post quite a few of them up there as well. As always, let me know what you think uh, and, uh, and send along any questions or guests that you want to hear from in the future. I think that's it for me. So I'd like to thank everyone at E1, uh, Kimberly, Adrian, and everybody else, uh, my editor, Dave, uh, for making all this possible, uh, for really making this a, a, a fun ex- and educational experience for me especially. Uh, that's it for me. I'm Mark Hennick. Thanks for listening to So-Called Normal. <laughs>